Welcome to Fresh Coast Jazz Backstage, the show that gives you a chance to hang with today's top contemporary jazz artists. I'm your host, Carl Brown. Welcome to Fresh Coast Jazz Backstage, everyone. Today's guest is really one of the architects of contemporary or smooth jazz as we know it. Just check out this minor, this small list of his accomplishments. Over 30 years of a career in this industry, he has had 75 plus number one hits, 12 albums to his credit, and been on countless songs and albums of other artists, and two Grammy Awards to his credit. He's a guitarist, composer, producer, and engineer. In fact, jazzreview.com called him the greatest producer in the history of smooth jazz. The list of people that he's worked with is absolutely amazing, from Luther Vandross to George Benson to Boney James to Al Jarreau, Dave Koz, so many more. The list just goes on and on. So please welcome to the show uh, a guy that I'm going to call the hit maker, Mr. Paul Brown. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. Yeah, man. How are you? We're doing well. We really appreciate you taking time to join us. So I have to say that who might be certainly one of the most accomplished people in all of contemporary jazz. And I don't think a lot of people know just how deep your influence has been on this genre of music. I mean, not only with your own music, but with the music that you've done for others, like, you know, 10 years or so of working with Boney James at the beginning of his career, your influence on the hits that are being made today by yourself and the many artists you've worked with is pretty amazing. Like, do you ever just sit back and think, wow, this is one heck of a body of work I've put together. I mean, I don't think about it all that often, but occasionally it presents itself in kind of an interesting way. My, I was in Japan doing a show not too long ago, and uh, my son comes with me and helps me with equipment and so on, a tour manager. And after the show, we went to the signing table, and there was a giant table the guy had put I don't know, 200 or so CDs on the table for me to sign. He said, yeah, you produced or wrote or played on all these CDs. I went, holy moly, that's a lot. But I said, I looked at this one and I said, you know what? I don't remember being involved with that. And he was produced one song and sure enough, I picked it up and he was right. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it is a lot over 30 years. Adds up. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. What is it about you or your approach or your personality that's made you so such a prolific influencer and hit maker i don't know i mean i it's funny because i really had never done jazz true jazz or otherwise and like you were saying it was really an r&b engineer and producer i was working with luther vandross and I, I was working with this group shy you remember them yeah i do and that's what i was doing mixing for different R&B acts. And I was actually mixing for Bobby Caldwell, what you want to do for love, Caldwell. That was in 1989 and I was mixing and he asked me to go to Japan with him to mix the house sound and record. Okay. And I said, well, that might be kind of interesting for like a month and a half all over Japan. So I said, okay. So I went, started coming to rehearsal and, you know, Jim Oppenheim was playing saxophone and second keyboards. And that was soon to become Boney. But anyway, he had approached me because he knew I worked with Luther. And he said, man, I just love what you do with Luther. And I really would love for you to produce my album. And at that point, like I said, I'd never done instrumental music. 
of any kind or jazz or anything else. And I say, you know, I mean, he's definitely got a gift. I really like, I mean, we were talking and become friends and I, I loved the way he played. And I told him, I thought that he sounded like Luther on the saxophone. Wow. And so I said, hey, if you want to do a Luther Vandross record on saxophone, you'll change your name from Jim Oppenheim to something. We didn't have Boney at the time. Okay. And I'm into it. So that's what happened. We come, we came back to LA and wrote a bunch of songs and came up with the name Boney James and which was at first a big deal for him and his family. But okay. now he's gone on his license and his, you know, he is Boney James. But anyway, so that was kind of my introduction into and my concept behind it was I hadn't listened to that format, so I had no idea what it was about. But at the time it was, you know, Spira Gyra. Dave Slamborn, you know, Grover Washington, and uh, Kenny G. That was and Jeff Lorber. That was kind of who was around at that time, late '80s. And I said, "Well, I haven't listened to that kind of music, but let's make a Luther record." So basically, we were making instrumental R&B music. That's kind of what I was thinking about. And the tracks are very R&B urban compared to what was happening at that time. And the record came out; it went platinum. Yeah, at a rate just absolutely ate it up. Almost every song was a single. And so went on and made another record with them. And the same thing happened. And it was a platinum record and had incredible radio success. At that time, everybody was calling it this sort of urban approach to, to you know, at the time it was called Quiet Storm, New Adult Contemporary, something like that. So Everybody was like, hey, man, what's this guy doing? Why is he selling so many records? So they started hiring me. Then I worked with Peter White and Rick Braun and Kirk Whalum and so on. And and they were very successful records. So at that point in 1990, it shifted for me. And then Luther died a couple of years later. And so I started working with Boney. We did nine records on Warner Brothers together, wrote over 100 songs. And so that just kind of like, from then on, 30 years have gone by, and I'm still being hired to do that same thing, basically. And people have started kind of copying, for a better, for, you know, lack of a better word, of the stuff that we did 30 years ago, the early bony stuff, that urban sound. And at the moment, it's kind of become a parody of itself. When I was getting hired to to do records with people, like I said, I did nine with bony. I did six six with Peter White. And I did eight with Huge Green. And so Warner Brothers actually signed me to an exclusive production deal as well a few years into that. So I could sign people. I signed, you know, we, we had an incredible roster with Norman Brown and, you know, Foreplay and Larry Carlton and Bob James. And I was producing all these people and Jonathan Butler and Rick Braun. It just went on and on. So, and then when Warner Brothers stopped, the one president kind of, a new president came in and decided he didn't want a jazz department at all. It had nothing to do with what we were doing because we were making money. And, uh, it was a political thing between these people. Anyway, that went away so that I became independent and it's just gotten even bigger since. It's just nonstop. At the time when the Warner Brothers thing was going, three or four records backed up that I was, as soon as I was done with one, I started another from Bob James to Larry Carl and to Kirk Willem and Jonathan Butler and Norman Brown, a huge green, and just one after the other, and sometimes two at the same time. 
And lately, it's been kind of the same thing. 30 years later, I've been, I was doing five records simultaneously last year and just sort of pecking away each day doing stuff. And, you know, it's been interesting. And part of the reason I was happy to do it was that there's literally no interference from the record company. Okay. I mean, Barney and I would write the music, produce all the music, mix it, master it, then hand it into the record company. That was the first time they would hear anything. And they were just like, okay. And so it was not like people meddling in your production. And because in R&B music, you got to jump through a lot of hoops to get to that finished product. And same thing in pop music. And so I enjoyed that part of it. And it was very creative. And I can just, when I'm not working as a producer, I'm writing. And then 15 years went by doing that. And one day I was writing a song that happened to be that song 24-7. Which I'm going to play at your concert. And anyway, that song was the first time I ever listened to myself and said, oh, that sounds like a finished product. And for me, playing guitar, I was like, wow, that's interesting. So I played it for a bunch of people. They're like, this is great. Do some more. So that was my first record in 04. I put out my own record and now I have, I'm working on my 13th solo CD, the smooth jazz genre, you know? That's pretty amazing. Like just listening to you, like I feel like I saw an episode a couple of weeks ago of 60 Minutes and they interviewed Rick Rubin and I'm hearing you and I'm like, oh, that sounds a lot like Rick Rubin because like one of the things Rick said was just like, he feels it. He feels the music and they showed him and his process is lying on a bed listening while people are recording stuff and then he goes in and gives feedback and critique right and then they listen and take it to the next level but like it's pretty amazing hearing talk about how organically this whole process for you came to be and unintentionally but like that level of success doesn't happen without some gifts and some hard work too one of the things i have to ask you is like You've worked with so many different people, so many personalities, I'm sure so many different ways of processes of working. How are you able to be so successful working with all those different personalities and all those different people's different ways of approaching things? Well, that must be something that I learned and I'm good at, I guess, but because they do a lot of, like I said, repeat businesses, which is something you can be proud of. I mean, I think the bottom line is I don't copy anybody else. I just do, like I said, like when Bowling and I first started, we're just doing music that we want to make. We're not like, well, what if radio doesn't want this? Or what if radio feels weird about that? And we don't think about that. We're just trying to make ourselves happy. And luckily, the stuff that we like seems to be embraced by radio, you know? And at the moment, it used to be, that we were selling just gobs of records. Of course, that made it like, well, do whatever you want, you know, but, but now that people aren't really selling records, the only way they're really making money is live. Yeah. Yeah. And through radio. And luckily radio is still embracing the stuff that I'm doing, but I'm not trying to model it specifically for radio. I think that's just a byproduct of the way I hear things and probably because more of an R&B oriented engineer and mixer, my, my stuff sounds a little bit different than the typical smooth jazz stuff. Yeah. Got more thumps, got more booty, it's got more punch. Yeah. I have a way of, from working with Luther, um, 
know, treating the lead instrument in a way to make him sound like a superstar. And that's something that I pride in and something that I've developed and uh, people try and do their thing, but that's something that I am good at. And people appreciate it when they hear themselves back in the headphones are like, whoa, okay, this is really special and inspires them to play better. And the whole thing is a little bit more inspiring. Yeah, no doubt. So did you, how did this musical journey start for you? Did you start out playing the guitar and then migrate into production work? Or did you, were you somebody who came into production work and then picked up the guitar? How did that all start? Well, I was actually a drummer and I never thought it would be anything but a drummer. And then when I was 23 years old, I got married and my brother-in-law called me the next day and he just happened to be head engineer of Warner Brothers, right? Recording engineer. And he called me and said, hey man, how are you going to pay for your, your wife and blah, blah, blah. What do you want to do to make a living? I said, drumming. He goes, no, you can start working for me. So okay. that next Monday, I started working for Warner Brothers in the recording studio, Amigo Studios, and was just a part of Warner Brothers. And I was in a Warner Brothers employee. And I grew up in the studio. My parents were both studio musicians, singers. And so they, they were doing television, movies, and records. My, my whole upbringing, I was hanging out with my mom at different studios. And my, both my parents, that's what they did. Okay. So I was always sitting in the booth thinking, wow, the engineer and the producer, that's a cool job. You know? And I was just a drummer and a fairly average drummer. Even though I, was, I was in bands, always trying to get a deal. But even in those bands, I was always the guy sort of arranging the songs and writing the songs. I also played guitar along the way. And then, anyway, when I became an assistant to, to Lee Hirschberg, you know, I was just happened to be at the golden age of recording at Amigo Studios. We had five recording studios. And to give you an idea, like the first sessions that I was assisting on was Christopher Cross's first album. Wow. In the afternoon, I was working with Ben Halen from 12 to 6. And then at night, from 6 to midnight, I was working on Michael McDonald's first solo album. So we're going from, you know, Ben Halen, those guys are unbelievable musicians. At night, you had Phil Ingaines and Jeff Piccaro and, you know, Lee Rittenauer, no, Lee Rittenauer and uh, Plinio da Costa. That was at night, you know, and Michael McDonald playing keyboards and singing. And then it was like, went all for years, you know, Randy Newman, Ray Peter, James Taylor, Bonnie Ray, Frank Sinatra. So I got to witness the production and the engineering and the playing of all these records for year after year. And it was an amazing education. And from the one of the greatest engineers of all time as well. I'm second for him and Al Schmidt, who's probably the most famous engineer of all time. And that's, that's how I grew up, you know? And I started bringing bands in the studio on weekends and producing. So I was, you know, got into production like that, but I was still and also engineering and mixing and started bringing folks in and engineering and kind of went like that. Wow. That's pretty amazing because I mean, like, okay, say it so humbly how you kind of picked up the guitar and started playing and then you figure out, oh, this is pretty good. But I got to imagine, like, you're working with the best of the best in every genre. Like, there, nobody just picks up the guitar and starts playing with those folks. Like, you got to have some serious chops to work. Actually, even though I was a drummer and my uncle 
was a very famous drummer. So from the age five to 15, I took drum lessons every week from my uncle. Okay. How to read music and, you know, and he also played the vibraphone. He was a world class vibraphonist. So he would write me out a part to play on the drums. So he would play the vibraphone. So we were jamming at very early ages, like six, seven, eight year old kid. I was already jamming with world, world class players. And then later, I had studied guitar as well. I took from Ted Green and Tommy Tedesco and Jimmy Weibel, some incredible guitar teachers. So I, I was educated pretty well. I went to University of Oregon and I was the music minor. I played drums in the jazz band and I played guitar in the chamber music. But I was a math major, believe it or not. My parents wanted me to be a lawyer, you know, and I was like, I just want to play music. So it just... I just went there. I did have some education. And I was fairly accomplished on the guitar by the time I started thinking about Eagles. It wasn't for writing that one song, though. I probably would not have pursued an artist's career on the guitar. It just That just came organically. I didn't set out to do it. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And luckily, you know, as I, I'd already been producing for about 15 years and already had a lot of success at radio. And a lot of the radio programmers and promoters knew who I was because of my production. So when I came out with my first record in 04, they already were like, okay, we know who this is. So I had some name value. So I started to get some really good live shows and radio just sort of just picked up as if it was, you know, Boney or whoever. Yeah. So that was advantageous. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we're glad not to ever tell anybody to go against what their parents want them to do as a career, but we're glad you stuck with music and decided not to be a lawyer. We got enough lawyers in the world. We don't That's have true. enough people making this good music. So let's take a listen to one of your songs. This is with your buddy Larry Carlton, who we're going to be excited to have both you and Larry playing at our Fresh Coast Jazz Festival in August here in Milwaukee. But this is from your Soul Searching collaboration. This song is Miles and Miles to Go.
All right, that was today's guest, Paul Brown, his collaboration with his good friend, Larry Carlton, on Miles and Miles to go off of their Soul Searching project. So, Paul, how did that collaboration for Soul Searching come about? Well, I had produced a couple of records for Larry on Warner Brothers back in the late 90s, and we'd, we'd stayed in touch, and I saw him at a couple of performances where we where he was either with Foreplay and I was opening up for them, or... Okay. We were at an award show and, um, and we, you know, I started saying, Hey man, you know, because we're managed by the same guy to Robert Williams. So we decided, you know what? We should do it. We should do a duet album. So we talked about it a few years and he's like, well, you know, if you do everything and just send it to me, I'll just play. That's cool. So I ended up writing all the songs with another great guitar player, a friend of mine, Shane. Terrio. And we wrote the music and then I kind of wrote the melodies with two guitars in mind. So then I played my part and then I played what I thought Larry's part would be. And then I sent it to him with our, our parts separate. And I said, choose whichever part you'd like to play. He chose the Larry part on all the songs. Really? Amazing. And then he just, he just recorded his guitar and sent it back to me. You know? And then we put it up after he sent it back and it was just like, oh man. Larry Carlton's playing is so sweet. He's just amazing. Yeah. So, and then, you know, we decided to go out and support it. You know, we've done a few gigs together and like, we're going to play your spot, which is going to be great. Yeah. And I'm actually going to see you guys also in a couple of weeks at Burks. So huh. I'm making the trek out to see you guys at Burks. So I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. That's great. And that's going to be a good one. And basically, it's the same show. It's a night piece band, you know, we got horns. Really cool. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to it. I mean, two great musicians. And, you know, like, I'm so looking forward. I love this whole searching project. And but just looking forward to seeing you guys live. That's going to be a lot of fun. So so how does your process for making music change depending on the different hat that you're wearing, whether you're an artist versus producer or an engineer? How does your process change or does it change? It doesn't really change, no. And I'm trying to convince my son and some of the other people that I work with that's like, you know, back in the day, we had these huge budgets and uh, I could charge X amount of dollars for doing certain things. It's just not like that anymore. And somebody, it, it, I try to tell my son, somebody pays you $10,000 to do a photo shoot, okay? You do your 100% best possible work. Somebody pays you a hundred dollars to do a photo shoot. You still do the hundred percent. Do it any other way, and that's the way I approach every single song. Is like, okay, how can this? How can I make this the best possible song? Bring out all the you know nuances of the song. Produce it in a way, or if I'm just mixing it, mix it in a way that brings the song out and makes it sound as good as it can possibly sound. I mean, it's not that complicated. Um, there's certain instrumentation that I like and, and then there's certain musicians that I like to work with to, to create this thing, you know, people that understand, I like to experiment when sometimes you get to the studio with certain guys, they don't want to experiment. They just want to play, but, and so I don't call them. I call the cats that like really get the fact that I'm trying to create something different and interesting. And something that we can all love. And if it takes five minutes, great. If it takes five hours, that's just the way it is. And that's the way I kind of approach it. One of my favorite things to do is being in the studio with the cats, creating from the beginning, because you can like, let's try a different tempo. Let's 
go to the bridge two bars earlier. Let's extend this section. Let's do this. And it's so much fun and so creative. And especially with the guys who really get it. And they're like, they realize that these parts that they're creating are forever. And it's not just I'm playing a rhythm guitar part. I mean, it's got to be saying something. It's got to be contributing to the arrangement, to the song. And every note has to be worth something. It's just not there just to be there. And I hear a lot of stuff on the radio, especially in this genre. It's like, this is guys playing the chords. It's not, there's nothing interesting about it. And occasionally the song is so strong, it doesn't matter. But generally speaking, if you listen to the classics, like for instance, George Benson, Breeze or something like that, you got, this is a bass part. It's also a hook of the song. And you got rhythm guitar part. That's another hook of the song. And then the melody doesn't start to, you know, that's when the sheet music actually starts. But all those parts are so integral to the overall song, you know? And, uh, and that, that's what I love, that when it all comes together like that. And certain they're great at doing, like reproducing, like you hear in bars, or you hear guys there, you hear playing with these great artists, they have these live bands, you recreate what we did in the studio, perfect. But you get those guys in the studio, and they don't understand the process of starting from scratch and creating those parts. Some do, but a lot don't. And that's what makes a studio musician different than a live musician. Occasionally, you find guys that do both well, but typically, it's a, it's its own little art form. You know, listening to you, I'm getting a little bit of your secret sauce. And it might seem like a really simple thing, but it's not. Clearly, care about the work. Like, Absolutely. And, but, you know, there's a lot of people, you made a comment that I've seen it myself, and I have nowhere near... The musical experience and or training that you do but you said some people are sometimes playing their instrument and as a fan i can tell that when somebody's playing when i go to a show i can tell when somebody's just playing their instrument as a fan and like i said i don't have musical training you know like you have decades and decades of this training right but the fact that well you know and i think that's a good point is that the reason that i'm so adamant about it is people do hear it yeah i mean it's plain it's plain as day and when it's not there they also hear that it's not there. Yep, they sure do. They sure do. And, but I think, you know, for, for, you know, for someone like you, like, I got to imagine, like, there's probably been times where if you care about what you do and somebody doesn't have the same feeling towards this, like, that's hard. It's hard to work with somebody. Like, I'm just like, it's not going to happen well, right? So how about we do this? How about we take a listen to another one of your songs? This is a new song of yours. This one is called Music is the Doctor. Music is the doctor that'll heal your troubled spirit And the rhythm can change you if you get your body near it so every man or woman, every boy and girl song, sing the same song and heal the world. 
poppy pill You don't need a fancy doctor or a PhD The prescription is love and some harmony We just heard Paul Brown's newest song, Music is the Doctor. So I got to ask you this question, Paul. Who is the funniest person you've ever worked with and who's the most intense person you've ever worked with? Well, Al Jarreau is an incredibly sweet and funny man. And we really had a good time working together. And he loved my wife and kids and, you know, my dog. And he was just, he would come down the driveway and Hey, Sammy, how are you doing? He was just, you know, really fun. I mean, Luther was, if he liked you, you were in good shape. If he didn't like you, oh my God, it was not fun. Okay. Uh, yeah, but he was just, you know, he was the greatest. I mean, his voice just absolutely pours out of the speakers. Yeah. My, my daughter wants to be a singer. And just two days ago, I pulled up and I showed her, and the thing I've been working with her on is like being a good technical singer. She's a very good technical singer, 
versus mm-hmm. being a person who sings with passion. Mm-hmm. And I pulled up the old YouTube video of Luther performing at the NAACP. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. And I, showed it to her. and I said, this is performance passion right here. Like, and I was saying to her, like, you can be a great technical singer all day long, but you got to put your heart in it and you got to make people feel something. And I was pointing out to her how people in the audience were just like, could, like they were feeling every single note, you know, it was pretty amazing. I think that's about the ultimate, you know, singer right there and, yeah. and the ultimate performance that you chose, because I've said that to a lot of people, a lot of singers to check out. I mean, it's just incredible. It really is. It really is. And you mentioned Al Jarreau. Al is a Milwaukee guy. Al grew up in Milwaukee. And one of the things that I'm actually working on is trying to get a street named after Al and trying to get a mural of Al done in Milwaukee. Okay. That's a great idea. Hopefully we'll get that done. So, Paul, we have this game we like to play on every show. It's called Bout It or Doubt It. If you're about it, it's something that you like. If you doubt it, it's something you're not quite feeling. Can we get you to play Bout It or Doubt It with us today? Oh, all right. That's your own risk. All right, let's do it. <laughs> I started this body body. If you body, get them up. Get em up. I mean, you body body. That I mean, you body body. We say you body body. Uh, I represent. I doubt it. All right, Paul, so we spin our wheel, we get you a category, and then we ask you a couple about it or doubt it questions, okay? Okay. Let's do it. Okay, so, Paul, your category is science and technology. So, about it or doubt it, artificial intelligence. I'm going to wait and see on that one. Yeah, kind of have to see. Generally speaking, I'm not a fan, but, you know, I don't think we know enough yet to really, you know, I mean, everything about it. I mean, I have a true hatred for digital, anything digital. Okay. I'm Mr. Analog over here. So I think artificial intelligence is like the ultimate digital format. So I'm probably getting ready to not like it. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little bit like you, Mike. My my concern with it is that I think that artificial intelligence, like I already have concerns about the lack of critical thinking that happens in with people nowadays, right? Now it already has right in the name, artificial. Right, Hello. Right, exactly. And so like like I, I'm my concern is that people just won't be able to think anymore. And like they, it's hard to find people that can really think critically now and it's gonna get worse with that. So I think well, I'm I wonder if they called it uh artificial soul. Yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, no kidding. So what are you supposed to think about that? Yeah. The artificial love. Right, right. Great points. Great points. All right. One more for you. About it or doubt it. Self flying airplanes. Not interested. Me either. I don't know. Well, you know. I got enough problem with airplanes. It's not my fear of flying, it's my fear of not flying. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, I'm like you too, man. I don't know how I feel about that. Like I understand computers and systems, but even as we know today, how you know, like technology doesn't always work the way you expect it to work. And I like having somebody who knows how the technology is supposed to work with their hands. I mean, I listen to Elon talk about the self-driving cars and he's like hey a computer is with the correct equipment is way more capable than a really terrible driver which there are a lot of and yeah. i don't agree with that but on the other hand you don't want to put 100 percent trust in something like that but if everybody had had it going on i'm sure it would be safer than a bunch of idiots driving yeah well that's true because then you don't have the uh, people driving impaired and all that kind of craziness too exactly 
So are you a musician who likes to listen to music as well? Or like after spending your entire day crafting songs and creating music, are you okay? I want to break away from music for a minute. Definitely. I don't listen to a lot of stuff. Yeah. Okay. The only time I really do is if I'm not working and I'm having, you know, friends over or whatever in the background, but not sitting and listening, like critically listening. I don't do a lot of that because I, like you say, I do it so much during the day. And it's funny because, you know, I've been married for 44 years and my wife, I mean, for the first 40 years, we never talk about music. We don't listen to stuff. We don't, we just don't discuss music because after I'm done, there's other things, children and homes and dogs and just life in general. There's plenty to talk about. So it's funny because a few years ago, she was writing this song because she's an author, songwriter, but not a singer. But she was singing this song, playing the piano, which she doesn't do well. And it was about our daughter who has addiction problems. And she was, and I was like, man, that sounds really good. And so she was doing it when people came over. I was like, well, she's got it going on, right? So a brownie studio recorded this song. And I put it on my record and it's called somebody's child. You might want to, you know, check it out. It's on one of my records a few years ago, but anyway, the record company liked it so much. They said, you know, why don't you do a whole record with your wife? She's kind of country country, you know, is her style. So we did a whole record and we're working on our second record now. So, but now that we've been working on music, it's like, I'll come down in the morning to get my coffee. And she's like, you know, whatever, you know, the bridge in this song, I'm like, yeah, I'm worried. I want my old wife back. So, I mean, you know, there are other things in this world and, and they're all important and stuff that I mean, I'm an avid golfer. Oh, cool. I'm, I'm a, I collect wine and I'm into that. So I've got like my wine friends and my golf friends and my music friends. A few of them overlap all categories, which is great. So. I kind of keep the music in its own little world, you know? Yeah. Even though I have a studio at home, so she's subject to a lot of music. But. You're a golfer and a wine person, okay? Two things that are close to my heart. So <laughs> I got to ask you a question. Have you ever been to Smith Madrone in Napa? Smith Madrone? Is that a winery? It's a winery. No. Okay. I'm I going to tell you, I'm a French snob. Okay. And I don't drink a lot of California wine. Even though I have been to Napa and Sonoma, but I don't drink a lot of their wine. Smith Madrone is the un is the un Napa winery. Okay. It's my wife and I went out to Napa right after COVID, and we happened to be the first people to go to the Smith Madrone vineyard in their fiftieth year after they reopened after COVID. And it's like Madrone. all. It's not like all the... What's their basic grape that you like? Well, I love their Riesling. They have like one of the world's top Rieslings, you know, one of the world's top Rieslings. And then they... don't drink a lot of white wine either. Go ahead. They make a hell of a cab too. They make a cab. So, so if you... Yeah, it's unlike the other California wine, Napa Valley wineries. It's a working farm really is what it is. Yep. And it's pretty nice. cool. And then golf. So, okay. So like, what's your handicap? Right now I'm at eight. But, I, you know, I in my 40s, I was two handicap. In my 50s, I was about a five handicap. And now I'm in my 60s, I'm an eight handicap. That's pretty damn good, though. That's pretty damn good. Yeah, I mean, I, I can shoot 72 or 92 any day. Right? Yeah. 
See, I'm if I can shoot 92, I'm ecstatic. Like, I'm not at your level, but what are some of, do you get a chance, like when you're out on the road or doing projects, do you get a chance to try to work in going and playing golf at different places or just all the time? Okay. Yeah. Like, for instance, we just went to Punta Minta, Mexico. Okay. and, And did a concert. And the guy, the promoter, is a golf fanatic. Yeah. And so I went down, we played golf every day. And, you know, when I go to Europe, same thing. I bring my clubs and we play golf. And Michael Paolo does, he does Temecula, Hawaii, and Palm Springs. And so I'm always doing his concerts and bringing my clubs. And yeah, absolutely. That is awesome. Good for you. And we went to Scotland last year. My son and I, we did the old course and Carnoustie. And we've been to Ireland, we've done Pebble Beach. I mean, you know, it goes on and on. That's awesome. That is awesome. So, so Paul, what advice would you give your 13-year-old self about life? I mean, you know, like you said before, find something that you have passion for. And, uh, you know, we, I teach like some of my friends from high school, well, I'm still friends with. When we graduated high school, we knew we were going to get jobs in the record business, you know, either as musicians or record company guys, or, you know, there was so many ways to make a living in the music business, publishing, you know, management, promoting, and we just knew, but now I don't know if those jobs are really exist anymore for the most part. I mean, there are some, I think it's a lot less, but back then, I mean, right now, I, like you said, I write, I produce, I engineer, I master, I, you know, arrange and record and you have to do everything. And I go out and play live gigs. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lots of different money streams there where before you could play guitar. I thought, I swear to God, I thought I was going to be a drummer my whole life and just play the drums. And if I did that, I don't think I would have the lifestyle that I have now, you know? I mean, maybe, but I doubt it. Yeah, the world has definitely changed. The music industry. Yeah, so, I mean, I would love it if my son and my daughter went to college, but neither one of them did. And I I tried everything to get them to do it, but they just didn't want to do it, you know? And But I I do think it's still great to get an education and just put 100% of whatever it is you're going to do, choose to do into it, you know? And I mean... My, my thing changed dramatically. I mean, when I was 13, I was drumming. I was drumming until I was 23. And then in my 20s, I started engineering. And then in my 30s, I started producing. And then in my 40s, I started doing shows as a guitarist. So, I mean, life changes and morphs, does all these things. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's so true. That is so, so true. Paul, let's take a listen to one more song. This one is also from the recent collaboration with Larry Carlton. This one is called Gone Fishing.
That was today's guest, Paul Brown, once again with his buddy Larry Carlton on the song Gone Fishing. So I'm gonna, I got two more quick questions for you. Put you on the spot a little bit. These are a couple of questions I love to ask all of our guests. This one probably won't be hard for you. What would you say are your three favorite albums of all? I really like, well, it'll probably come as a surprise to you that I'm a deadhead, but Europe 72, you know, up there. I really love Peter Gabriel's So album. Yes, that's a classic. And Miles Davis, So What? I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. Good. Kind of blue. Luther Records, I mean, it would be hard to choose one of his, but probably his first record. I mean, I didn't have anything to do with it, but it was a beautiful record. Yeah, yeah. Those are some pretty good choices. Those are pretty good choices. I really like Al Jarreau's first album, We Got By. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a question. Yeah, because I saw him play at the Blah Blah here in L.A. before he had ever had a record deal, and he was kind of a late starter. I think he was maybe 40 at the time. And then I saw him, and I was just like, man, that's got to be the greatest entertainer I've ever seen. He just sings, and he moves, and he's just, he's jazz, he's pop, he's all these things. It's just amazing. And so I really love that album. I really didn't listen to a lot of his other albums, but that We Got My album is amazing. Yeah, yeah, that is a good piece of work, and he was a fantastic performer. I got a chance to see him four times, and he was Always a fantastic show. Yeah. So, so Paul, you're having a dinner party, and you can invite any three people, living or deceased. Who are you inviting to your dinner party, and what's on the menu? Living or deceased? Yeah. 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 You know, I'd probably go with my dad. Yeah. Maybe Albert Einstein. Oh, that's a great one. Maybe uh, Jack Nicholas. Oh, yeah. That'd be a heck of a party. That'd yeah. be a heck of a party. And what, you, what are you serving? Oh, I don't think that's important, but uh, some great wine, some great wine though. There you go. There you go. So what is your go-to French wine? I'm a Burgundy guy. Okay. You know? I love, it's basically Pinot Noir, you know, and French Burgundy is just, I think a lot of wine people, they generally get into like, they start with champagnes and, you know, they start getting better champagne and they start to get into some California cabs and whatevers. And eventually Bordeaux. And then eventually they get to, to Burgundy and everybody pretty much freaks out when they get to Burgundy, especially if you have the good makers and, uh, it's just so hedonistic and soulful wine, you know, it's, it's not a freak forward, knocking you over the head type of thing. It's way more delicate. Okay. And you know, you go, it's funny, you go to parties they go to wine parties and they're drinking Bordeaux. People talking about music, I mean, talking about money and cars and you know, houses. And then you go to a burgundy party, everybody's talking about sex and rock and roll. And it's just the way it is. It's a more hedonistic thing, you know, that happens when you drink that wine. Yeah, it's not so structured, you know, it's just more, you know, I don't know how to explain it. But Jerry Hay, Jerry Hay, the trumpet player, Ranger, he's the one that got me into wine. Okay. Okay. And uh, we went to lunch one day and he brought a Latosh, which is, you know, now like $10,000 a bottle. Back then it was a couple hundred dollars a bottle. But so, and I had it and I was like, man, what is this? You know? And so it's been, you know, that was probably in the mid nineties and it's been a search ever since to recreate that. And wow. I've had lots of Latosh with him and with others and it's a special it's a special thing you know it sounds like it it sounds like it 
So what does the rest of the year hold for you? Well, I'm, you know, we're doing Burks in a couple of weeks and yeah. I'm going to play your place. And then I'm going to play the Pizza Express again in London in August, just a four-year gig. And then I'm going to Portugal in May and the Portuguese Jazz Festival. And then in November, back to Mexico, Punta Minta, and just before that, Mallorca, Spain. So yeah, I do a lot in Europe, you know, and it seems to be a more natural thing with it. With, it seems like in, in the States, it's always the same people on every single festival. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to get into that world, then I think it's cool. And I do it occasionally, but um, the Europe just seems to like what I do and they're totally into it. So... Well, Milwaukee likes what you do, too. I've had, since we announced our lineup, I've had multiple people reach out to me. And I had a woman reach out to me just last week, and she said, oh, my God, I am so happy you're bringing Paul Brown here. I thought I would never get to see him unless I went to California or someplace else. So so we're ex- excited to have you come. And I want to thank you for taking time out of your always busy days to spend a little time and chop it up with us. We're excited about having you come. And Anything we can do to make your trip easier, just let me know. But we appreciate your time today, man. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate it. So is there any golf there in Milwaukee that we could hit in August? Absolutely. And I was just thinking about that because a good friend of mine who's, he's about, he's probably plays about at your level. I'm going to get him to take you out to his country club, which has a pretty nice golf course. If you so let All right, me- let's think about it. You got my email, so sure I don't do. know what the dealio is with that, because I could come in earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be cool. We'll hook that up. We'll make sure you get to play some golf when you're in town. Okay, all right, man. All right. Well, all the best. Thank you for your time today. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. I'll see you soon at Burks. Sounds good. Look forward to it, man. All right. Peace. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. Be sure to get your tickets to see Paul and his buddy Larry Carlton at the 2023 Fresh Coast Jazz Festival, along with Lindsey Webster, Rick Braun, Julian Vaughn, Lynn Roundtree, Ali Silk, and Jeff Ryan. For tickets, go to FreshCoastJazz.com. That's our show for this week. Be sure to check out our website, FreshCoastJazz.com, to sign up for our email list so you can stay up on what's going on with contemporary jazz. We'll see you next time on Fresh Coast Jazz Backstage. Backstage.